0: What kind of a show
1: are you guys putting on here today? You're not interested in art? No. Now, well, look, we're going to do this thing. We're going to have a
0: conversation. From Chicago, this is Film Spotting. I'm Adam Kempinar. And I'm Josh Larson. Java Lyric. Oh, dear, but not finished yet. Come on. Come on, girl. You know how much I want you. Like a ghost, I'm going to hunt you. Meet me at your crib. Bring your you friends. Maybe we can drive a Mercedes Benz. We'll hang out poolside.
1: That's from Flora and Son, the latest from the director of Once and Sing Street, John Carney. A new film from Carney Adam. Is that enough to justify a national holiday in the Kempinar household?
0: It should be in Ireland, and it's definitely a national holiday in the Republic of my house. For all of those who celebrate, Flora and Son comes to Apple TV Plus this weekend. We've got a review, plus thoughts on the new No One Will Save You and the recently re released Stop Making Sense. That and more ahead on Film Spotting. Welcome to Film Spotting. For anyone wondering how distracted I am these days, I love getting breaking good news from the notes Sam puts in front of us in our script. Congratulations are in order, apparently, Josh. Yeah, the Writers Guild. As of
1: this taping, it looks like they've arrived at an agreement for a new contract. This strike's been going on for four months, and it sounds like uh, it sounds like that the agreement meets most of the union's stated goals that they had. These covered things like increased pay for streaming content, minimum staffing for TV shows, and protections for writers from AI-related concerns. Yeah, I haven't been following this too closely myself. Did hear a couple of podcasts on the topic, which were helpful, and so I do know that the Screen Actors Guild and AFTRA are continuing their strike, so we'll have to pay attention to the news and
0: see how that develops. Later in the show, we'll reshare our 2020 conversation about a film some of you may have caught up with over the weekend. Maybe some of you caught up with it for the first time on that big screen. Jonathan Demme's Stop Making Sense, which has been playing here just in IMAX, Josh, expanding to more screens like the one in my town this weekend. But first, there's more music with John Carney's latest, Flora and
1: Son. But does it have the same magic we've come to expect from him?
0: Young Max. One more offence, and you'll be behind bars. Flora, you're his mother. Find him something to do. What are you doing right now? You don't want to know. You are a great mother, am I? Happy birthday. What's that? It's yours.
1: Don't want to play. Since when am I a guitarist?
0: I can't go on like this. Living in a shoebox with a kid who hates me.
1: I can't wait for the day I don't have to be here.
0: Go on! Go back to your dad! I might learn the guitar
1: myself. That's just too funny. Takes years of practice, commitment. Are you really going to
0: talk to me about commitment? So you want to learn the guitar? This is a gift you can take to your grave. What's your problem? I didn't know I had a problem. You're teaching guitar online, love. So now it just needs a killer bridge. Joseph Gordon-Levitt's online guitar instructor, Jeff, explains to Eve Hewson's Flora... A change for eight bars after the chorus. Because no matter how personal, honest, or surprising a good pop song is, there is a formula to follow. The same is arguably true of a good John Carney movie, at least the ones we've seen. And I'm not just referring to the fact that you, Josh, have yet to catch up with 2013's Begin Again. Prior to his 2007 breakout, once, the Irish director made three films, November Afternoon, Park, and On the Edge. Aspiring Carney completists should be aware that all three are more or less impossible to find, though, if you are truly committed, reach out to my currently Killian Murphy obsessed daughter, Sophie, who somehow tracked down On the Edge to watch at a friend's house a few weeks ago. Gordon Levitt's Killer Ridge line actually tags Flora and Son's contribution to one of the crucial constants in the Carney equation the intimate exchange between guy and girl discovering a song together. In Once, it's Glenn Hansard and Marketa Erglova, identified in the credits as Guy and Girl, in a Dublin music shop performing Falling Slowly, a song that somehow still gives me chills whenever I hear the verse swell into the chorus. Begin Again deviates, though the small-but-mighty Begin Again hive may disagree with my choice of scene, the one where Keira Knightley's talented singer-songwriter and Mark Ruffalo's semi-washed-up record producer unite as listeners. They wander, headphone-entwined, through the streets of New York City, talking and dancing to the sounds of Frank Sinatra and Stevie Wonder. The characters connect with each other, less so with viewers. The electricity is noticeably absent, perhaps a reason why Begin Again isn't as memorable as its predecessor, or its successor, 2016 Sing Street, which finds young Robert laboring to get the older Rafina to see him and herself differently something he accomplishes via the song she inspires him to write, and the camera he trains on her as the star of his music videos. In one montage, we watch as the song Up progresses from demo, to band recording, to cassette delivery at Rafina's door, to Rafina's tearful reaction in front of her mirror while she prepares to go out on yet another meaningless date. Flora and Son's scene, occurring on the rooftop of Flora's apartment building, comes closest to replicating the exact magic of once. With a twist. While her piano playing and vocals no doubt enhance Hansard's song, the song is his. Guy lets girl in. This time, girl gently kicks down Guy's door. He plays something he wrote, updated and improved based on her previous less-than-glowing feedback, and she completes it. The chorus, Maybe We Can Meet in the Middle, literally expresses the bridging of the distances between them. She, a struggling single mother of a delinquent son in Dublin, he, a former songwriter disillusioned by the music business 5,000 miles away in LA. Josh, it's possible that how much you appreciate Flora and Son is directly proportional to how much you appreciate Meet in the Middle, the song, the performance, and the shared discovery we get to witness. How strongly did you connect with Flora and Jeff, and thus Flora and Son? Did you feel privileged? To serve as their lone audience? Or are you seeking a refund?
1: You've hit on the musical high point, I think, for sure, in Flora and Sun. And it is that sequence. I like how it incorporates a bit of fantasy, you know, with Jeff appearing finally. I was so glad he popped out of that laptop previous Mm -hmm. to this instance, right? And we weren't going to have to watch Joseph Gordon-Levitt on a tiny computer screen the whole movie. It threatened to do that for a while, and I was getting worried. But this is a lovely instance that incorporates some fantasy as Carney did in Sing Street during a musical number. And yeah, they get to share the same space. Uh, that rooftop together, which is a sweet touch. And the song itself is delightful. Mm -hmm. I liked the things you pointed out about it, but I also like it just as a larger commentary on the subject of these duet ballads or love songs in general, generally going in one direction or the other, right? They're either overly romantic And the lovers are experiencing nirvana, or they are doom-laden, depressive, and love is the worst thing the songwriter could ever have experienced in their life. And this is a nice tweaking of that um, element, that sort of genre of music writing, songwriting in general, in that you've got one person singing one voice, the other person singing the other voice, and then the chorus, literally, where they are meeting in the middle and saying, you know, let's just find... A steady place where we can enjoy each other. Maybe we should meet in the middle. Maybe we could find a little city.
0: No one knows.
1: And it serves the characters so well, right? That's the other delightful thing about it. it, Is we do have in Eve Hewson's mother this aggressive, impulsive. Um, She is, in many ways, the character she's describing when she sings. And then Joseph Gordon-Levitt is, you know, yeah, he's had some disappointments in his life, but you get a sense that he's also playing the romantic. Um, And so it captures who they are as characters, too. And if these two characters are ever going to connect musically, as student-teacher, potentially in a romantic sense— They're going to have to find a unique third space that's different from where Mm -hmm. the other two are and how that's handled in the narrative itself. We probably shouldn't get into because that would involve spoilers, Um, but how it's handled in this sequence is uh, a really nice touch and i think overall flora and son especially as you're putting it in the context of carney's other better known movies and the ones i've seen very much is a reshuffling of the deck you know it's it's got a lot of those elements which is fine um this is this is why we talk about directors writer directors as auteurs they revisit same themes using some of the same techniques and tropes um But it's, you know, it's maybe doing that. And we can get into this for me, at least at a slightly lower level than once and sing street, but it has moments like this, which remind you of what was so appealing about those movies and why this one is a good time too.
0: Yeah. If I'm putting together my letterbox list, I'm also putting it behind once in sing street in some order. That's still to be determined, I guess, depending on the day and my mood, but that doesn't mean I didn't have a wonderful time with this movie and it certainly doesn't mean that I'm not recommending it and you were addressing there how this fits into Carney's filmography there is an element maybe we can get to in more detail there's an element that's unique to him so far in that it is focused on her experience as a woman as a mother We're going to hear a listener in our poll feedback later who comments on their appreciation for Begin Again being tied to the fact that it offers a fulfilled female musician. And that's true. But I kind of still see Begin Again as mostly the story of Mark Ruffalo's character the same way. Urglova and Rafina in Once and Sing Street, respectively. They may be women who have their own narrative journeys, and I do think Carney gives them that, but the point of view is still largely focused on the male characters, and that's decidedly not the case here, even though it also weaves in, like those other movies do with the female characters here. This movie weaves in the male characters, her son, and, of course, Joseph Gordon-Levitz. Jeff, I think you make a really good point Josh, that I don't want to just repeat about that song, which is just, for me, undeniably catchy. I've been singing it for three days since I saw the movie and since I worked on that setup. But it really is about them staking out their individuality in those verses. So the words they're singing, the tone of it, it all matches exactly who they are. And I think that, that speaks to why that sequence in this film overall works as well as it does. I think that sequence on the rooftop might also be not just the musical high point of the film, but the filmmaking high point where we do get Joseph Gordon Levitt out of the laptop. I think he's come out of the laptop maybe before that point. Yeah. But maybe twice he twice does even. there. Yeah, he does there. And just the the really careful use of close-ups in cutting, that that whole sequence, it goes on through the night. It's not just the song. They they wake up and see the sunrise together, it becomes very confessional. And there's a line she says that really stood out to me. I wonder if it did to you as well. She says to him, it's very intimate, isn't it? Right after the song's done singing together like that, it's a bit like we've just made love or something. And he, he rejects that of course, cause that's in his nature to reject that and try to keep those types of advances and that, that talk at bay. And she says, I do feel a little bit naked right now. I think music is all about romance, she adds there at the end. This, for me, is one of those movies that just had a smile on my face the entire time, and I don't think Carney is consciously doing it, but it's almost as if he's winking at us. There, he's calling our attention to the magic of his movies or the magic trick of his movies. That is, if you do it right, having characters sing together is very intimate. We can feel like we're privy to a transcendent connection. Like we're a private audience being allowed to watch people open themselves up to another person. But here's the thing. You do have to do it right. (laughs) The song does have to be great. And Carney writes these songs. Gary Clark also contributes to the songwriting here on this album. And it has to be worthy of the moment. And we have to believe in the characters enough as individuals to want to see them share themselves with the other. And all of those boxes are checked for me here.
1: Yeah. And should also note for meet in the Middle, you know, Houston and Carney and Gary Clark, you said, I think also Robert John Ardiff. Um, I don't know. I think even Joseph Gordon-Levitt gets a credit. So this is a very collaborative effort as mm-hmm. has happened with his other movies, you know, incorporating the Actors on the screen, and I think that only adds to the intimacy you're talking about, right? Um, you can feel that extra level of investment, maybe, or ownership. I think you can. It's a good um, point. And, and so, I think that's a crucial part of his filmmaking process. So, you asked a question or posed, you know, the idea of you have to get it right. And I think we agree on the fact that this song, particularly, does get it right. This sequence gets it right. But that is a helpful question for me um, when it comes to figuring out what held me back a little bit about this film compared to his others. I don't know if all of the scenes, particularly the non-musical ones, get that right in the sense of tone management than his other films did. And this is tied very closely to me with Eve Hewson's performance as Flora. And let me just say right off. I think she's very good. In this movie, probably worth noting since she's credited as a songwriter, you know, you don't always need to track down the the celebrity relationships of some of these actors. But this is Bono's kid, right? Uh, an adult woman at this point, but daughter of U2's Bono, and I do think she's really good on this. I think she's being asked to do something that's very difficult. Is there are there are two movies here? Well, let me put it this way: this could be an intensely dark story. The things that are happening here, there is, you know, between her and Max, her son, played by Oren Kinlan, there is a, a lot of really vicious argumentation and insults thrown back and forth. This is a story about uh, economic struggle. I think she's she's facing that as well. Uh, it's a story about the juvenile uh, detention system that this town that, you know, he, he's being threatened with and ends up being involved with. And I think Houston is up to that movie, but she's also being asked to play some of these moments comedically. I, I did find a little back and forth in terms of what kind of, I think I know what kind of movie this wanted to be. It wanted to be a John Carney movie, which is overall, you know, there were some difficult family situations in Sing Street in particular, I remember, but overall these want to be fantasies, essentially, right? Mm -hmm. That music making can solve all of our problems. Um, And uh, here it seemed to touch on some darker directions that I felt Houston had the tools to go to. I think she's also very funny, which the movie wants to have as well, but because the movie overall didn't have a strong sense of which way it wanted to be, I felt that tied her hands in a way. And let me, maybe it's more helpful if I I give one moment where I kind of noticed this, it comes fairly early on. It's one during one of those arguments between Flora and her son. I mean, they're saying terrible things to each other. And I was actually kind of intrigued, like, whoa, is, is Carney going a little darker here than i've seen him go before but then you realize oh no i think we're supposed to be laughing at how they're talking to each other Mm. and i wasn't sure but here's what did it for me the sequence ends this is after she's picked the guitar up from a trash bin, had it repaired, tries to give it to her son and he rejects it. That incites the argument. So the sequence ends with her trying to, he leaves their little apartment and she tries to like throw it out their tiny window. And it's kind of a sight gag, right? It's a a visual sight gag. She can't get it through. So she's, she's jamming it and it's a bit of physical comedy. And I just thought, you know, that's just one example of where the tone felt a little bit off to me. So I don't know whether, you know, tell me what you think about the tone, but I definitely want to hear what you think of Houston's
0: performance too. Yeah. I love Houston's performance. And I think she's a big reason why ultimately the tone question you're posing didn't really bother me. I get your response. I'm not surprised at all at the response. In fact, early on, I felt it Myself, And then I think as the movie developed and as I spent more time with those characters, and certainly as I got more lost in the music, I realized or my sense was that what I was latching onto to early on just isn't the film this movie wants to be or is becoming. And let me try to express that a little better here. I didn't I didn't ever get a sense that we should be laughing at them, but I also feel like. We're not supposed to be looking at it like a Frederick Wiseman documentary either, where it's it's documenting these terrible conditions that they're living in. I am very hesitant to generalize, but I think we see this in a lot of his films with a lot of these characters who have maybe had somewhat lackluster experiences in life, and yet they find a way to keep persevering largely through a very absurdist and very dark sense of humor. And I think overall there is an irreverence to the movie and to Hewson's character that, that makes sense and made me, I guess, understand why some of those scenes came off so vicious to use your word early on. I actually think the more I reflect on those scenes, it's almost like it's not the parent child dynamic. It should be, or that, we're used to, where a parent saying those kinds of things is something that is borderline criminal. It's it's more about she kind of in a weird way sees him as too much of an equal, and she thinks she can talk to him the way well, she she's would very talk young, to, right? So that's yeah, part of the dynamic. It might be. And yeah. she thinks she can talk to him the same way she talks to her ex, the the son's father. There's a part of me that actually came to think, Josh, and you can completely reject it it might be me trying to give carney too much credit because of how much i ultimately did end up appreciating this film and and love his other films but i wondered if that was actually my reaction to the tone early on was actually a limitation within me where i was so easy or i was quick i was quick to decide what type of person she is or what type of person she must be. And I I think Carney might actually be doing something a little bit clever and a little bit subversive, which is he wants to take a character who we're so easy, like society, we're so easy to write off. And then what we have to realize is actually how many Floras are there out there? Really? These kind of aimless characters, but who actually may have the same type of intelligence and resolve and ability to overcome their circumstances, but but maybe don't ever find that that outlet.
1: Yeah, I didn't find myself making any sort of moral judgments about her based on, you know, the tone issue I was having. It wasn't really anything to do with her character. It was more about how the beats were being played. And, you know, there was a later scene that's kind of the opposite, where it leaned, if I felt that early scene was leaning more into comedy, there's a scene for me that leaned more, a moment that leaned more into seriousness, where I thought um, Houston in particular came alive uh, and the film did as well. And it does involve music a little differently than we've been talking about. Um, but this is after she's been taking some lessons. Jeff has been teaching her about. Um, the craft of songwriting, what goes into it, how, how a good song is made and how it actually connects with people. And she's at home in the apartment uh, doing dishes and has, in the background on that laptop, she, there's a YouTube a video of Joni Mitchell performing both sides now. Oh, and yeah. Flora goes to the sink to start absentmindedly doing dishes. She's kind of concentrating on that, kind of listening to the music. And Carney's camera just rests on her face. And you see there that without even kind of realizing she's becoming overcome by mm-hmm. the song and not only the artistry and craft and beauty of that song itself, but the way it seems to be speaking directly to her, Right, which is what a lot of this movie is about, right? Is, is not just writing a good song, but a good song that will connect with people. And again, that's where the movie clarified for me. It was hitting a beat that I'll put it this way. It was a hitting beat a beat that I felt Kearney wanted that moment to hit. Mm Houston not only knew what she was going to hit, but had the particular skills. I mean, I don't want to get into a bait, whether comedy or drama is harder, but she's definitely skilled. I think she's skilled at both here. Definitely skilled at this moment, which is an incredibly powerful one, just working with her face. Um, And I thought, yeah, that's you know, that's it that like th- everything is clicking here, whereas the earlier scene for me, it was more about just different
0: conflicting beats is kind of what I was picking up on. Yeah, I love that moment. You're right that we get Houston doing some really fine work there. And I think that's a hard scene for anyone to pull off where they have to process what the music is giving them and make us see the personal Connection. There's there's nobody else to work off of there, right? right? It's just it's just the music. It's a connection with Joni Mitchell's music. I'm also glad that we get a little bit of a redemption moment for Joni Mitchell here. Not that her song Coyote in the Last Waltz, which we talked about last week, isn't great, but it's it's maybe the one little Scorsese vignette slash transition that doesn't work at all in The Last Waltz, is when he goes from them talking about women on the road to then. The first woman we see on stage, Joni Mitchell. I I like much better how she's used here. I was assuming that was intentional,
1: like he was trying to to insert a little like ironic commentary and try to undercut that conversation. So I was taking as I took that moment as charitably as I could on
0: Scorsese's part. Well, Marty, I'm sure appreciates that. I, I was less charitable, despite my overwhelming adoration for that film, the movie or a movie I thought about a lot is a recent one that stars another incredibly talented woman who can also sing very well and that's Jessie Buckley the movie's Wild Rose which might be the movie that I saw Jessie Buckley in for the first time I can't I can't quite remember but Wild Rose is about a woman who is trying to raise her two kids in this case. She's in Scotland. She's a little rougher around the edges even than Flora is. She's just gotten out of prison at the beginning of the movie. She certainly gets in a lot more trouble throughout the movie than we see Flora get into. And that movie has a little bit of that grittiness to it, even though the film is ultimately one that's taking the character on the same journey that Flora is going on here, which is really one to just responsibility and accountability and and really a line that Jeff says in the movie to her. I think it's in the rooftop scene even where he asks her, how come the way things are is never enough for you? And we see in this character and we see in Buckley's character in Wild Rose, someone who finally comes to terms with that idea, with the way things are being just enough. And I think that interplays neatly with the idea of musicals in general, which like all of Carney's films, this movie basically is or kind of is. And that's where you can have that fanciful element to it. But if you really were going to break down, didn't John Carney just provide maybe the best film criticism ever in one line? If you were to sum up the core yearning of musicals, it's characters who are expressing that the way things are just isn't enough for them. I just love I just love that little bit of dialogue or that line there we get from Carney. There's a related comment that Flora's
1: friend makes to her. We've seen her these two hang out a couple of times, get the sense they've known each other since they were much younger. And her friend says to her, hasn't most of your life been about you? This is when Flora's been kind of bemoaning all these things that have been happening to her. And I think that gets at the root of who this character is. And she voices, in some sense, our exasperation for her, right? It's one of those moments where you're kind of, as Flora's going on and on, you're thinking that in your head. And then another character voices it. So I like that. I like particularly, you know, it also speaks to that. Um, sort of not necessarily darker side but downer side but I don't want to as I said I do think Houston is good at the comedy here so I want to call out a couple of moments uh, so her ex who is played by Jack Rayner has the Irish Seth uh, Rogan has a new uh, girlfriend in his life who's a, a thorn for Flora, obviously. Juanita. <laughs> Juanita. <laughs> a very you know, let's just say, um, strangely named Juanita, and Flora gets this great moment where she's gonna perform a song and just kind of pulls out an unexpected uh performance. Yes. I'll just leave it at that. I don't wanna spoil it. <laughs> it's really um, good. So funny there. And also I gotta ask you, Adam, bassist, right, in your band? Yes. Bassist. Have you ever had a moment, and I kind of don't want to spoil this either, but it's so funny, <laughs> in the climactic musical performance where, won't give all the context, but her ex, Jack Rayner, his character is on stage with his bass, he's the bassist, and um, <laughs> have you ever had anyone in the band when you've tried to
0: go off on your own bass solo, just turn around and go, absolutely not. Absolutely not. No, that is a really good moment. I haven't, Josh, because... I'm a responsible bass player who's mm. just all about holding it down okay. and blending in and not drawing attention to himself. I figured as much, but it, in, my, <laughs> in my dreams, I just uh-huh. wish there was a moment where you, you just lost it and the rest yeah. of the band was just like <laughs> it has the side yeah. eye. There's still time for me. <laughs> Flora and Son comes to Apple TV Plus this weekend. If you see it and agree or disagree with us, let us know. Feedback at filmspotting.net. <laughs>
1: No dialogue in that bit of the trailer from the new No One Will Save You. Because, Adam, tell me if this is true. I've seen hints at this from some of the reviews scrolling by on social media and Letterboxd. Is this entire movie dialogue free?
0: There are groans. There are moans. There's some heavy sighs. There are other assorted sounds, maybe even a few whispers. But as I recall, there is but one line of dialogue in the film.
1: Intriguing. So this is No One Will Save You. It's the new sci-fi thriller that came exclusively to Hulu last weekend. It stars Caitlin Deaver in a solo battle against extraterrestrials. It's directed by Brian Duffield, whose other feature directing credit is 2020's Spontaneous, which took place in a high school where students inexplicably explode. And somehow inexplicably, this got past me. (laughs) My man loves his high concepts. I mean, come on. Early reviews for No One Will Save You were generally positive. David Ehrlich at IndieWire credits Duffield for his clever staging of the, quote, Alien versus Deaver battles. And in her review for IGN, our friend Mariah E. Gates says that the film is at its best when it, quote, marries the tension of the home invasion thriller with the thrills of an alien abduction film. Mariah also praises Deaver for carrying the movie, nearly single-handedly. And then, how about this one? None other than Guillermo del Toro came to Twitter in praise of the movie. He wrote this, No one will save you is fun, fun, fun. It is also smart and with great moments staged in a classic solid way. It avoids the pitfalls and maximizes its resources. I couldn't think of a more perfect movie for your weekend fulfills all the promise of spontaneous of course guillermo del toro didn't miss spontaneous now i even feel
0: worse about all that adam are you in line with these folks well first of all i will note josh that for the day job you will need to see this movie and you will need to go back to mr del toro's twitter feed to read his comments on how this movie ties back to catholicism and its commentary on grace and suffering. So, oh, wow. just pointing that out there.
1: Can for I you. possibly fit this into my Pinocchio theology piece I wrote after You're going to have to. Del Toro's Pinocchio? I might have to rethink that whole thing now.
0: Yeah. I'm not sure who I want to try to contradict less, David, or Mariah, or oh, boy. Mr. Del Toro. Oh, boy. I get the I get the Dever praise. From Mariah, I've always been very pro Caitlyn Deaver, and I also appreciate, more or less, the marriage of home invasion thriller and alien abduction film. And Del Toro is right that it's staged, overall, in a classic, solid way. Maybe the crux of it is, Josh, that I just thought it was kind of fun, and not fun, fun, fun. And I wish it was even... A little smarter. I'd One and a half read, out of four funds. That's it. Okay. I'd have to read David's take on the staging of the alien, v. Dever battles, because instead of finding them clever, I was mostly focused on how the combination of the blocking and the aliens themselves, the design of the aliens seemed to be such that it distracted from how easily the aliens otherwise should have dispatched. Of Deaver's character Bryn. She's a very capable, very resourceful woman who nevertheless makes a living producing arts and crafts, as far as I could tell. This is not a character who's going to be in The Expendables 5, and I haven't figured out where to put the five in that, Josh. I I gave it a lot of thought, maybe Mm. too much thought. Couldn't find a place for the five. The aliens are very spindly and clumsy and slow. And I just saw that as kind of more practical (laughs) than anything. So we could explain why she continually gets away and always overpowers them. It is a high concept as I joked. So from the very beginning, I'm hyper-focused on the payoff. What's it all going to add up to? And on top of that, Duffield is withholding information about Bryn's past. He's giving us breadcrumbs, maybe maybe more than breadcrumbs, semi semi meals, but he's giving us information about Bryn's past and the reasons why this entire small little town seems to be against her. So it's building to a reveal, very clearly. And those two things as they usually are, the payoff and the reveal are connected and they're connected in a way I felt just wasn't surprising or revelatory enough. Thinking about the character and where it ends up, and this is tough. It's one of those movies you really, because of the payoff, because of the reveal, and ultimately where I fell on it, I'd love to discuss in more detail the spoiler material. But I'm positive that this filmmaker feels as if it's a happy ending. And let me be clear, I don't mean that in terms of any kind of traditional happy ending. I mean it simply in terms of an ending that doesn't undermine the character and her struggle. I'm sure that's what the filmmakers going for, but that wasn't my experience with the ending. And in terms of the the gimmick itself, and that's that's really what it is. I mean, there are times where people in some of these scenarios would absolutely verbalize something I think everyone watching just admits to that and you have to be willing to suspend some disbelief. Even if she's just talking out loud to herself, nobody is quiet as long as she's quiet, especially in these scenarios. But it mostly works. The mechanics are fine, Josh, but it's one of those questions where was I maybe even too focused on how the movie was sticking to the gimmicks scene to scene versus just getting caught up in the story? Yeah. I think I was. And in the end, it's not that the gimmick doesn't work, but I'm also not sure it doesn't justify itself either. I'm just not convinced it enhances or informs the experience, even as I get it. I get it. Bryn is this very isolated woman who expresses herself only through her actions, really only through her work and this idyllic model of the town that she's building. So I'm not saying, I'm not saying it's something that the director is just imposing on it. That doesn't make any sense. I'm also saying, I don't know that it really adds anything that was satisfying for this viewer anyway.
1: All right. I mean, those other reviews had me inching toward trying to catch
0: up with this, but you should still see it now. Now you've backed me off a little bit. We'll see if I get to it. (laughs) Since when have you ever listened to me? No one will. No one will save you is available. Exclusively on Hulu. If you see it and agree or disagree with me, we'd love to hear from you. Feedback at filmspotting.net. Next week, we're going to get to another streaming title.
1: This is one that we were hoping to get to for this week. Wes Anderson's The Wonderful Story of Henry Sugar, but... We're just going to, you know, have to see it when everybody else does, when it shows up on Netflix, that is September 27 and we're recording right now just before that. So we'll get to it. We'll talk about Henry Sugar on next week's show. And then possibly, I'm pretty sure I'll be able to check this out. Hopefully you yeah, will I'm too. I'm going to try. Adam Gareth Edwards, the creator, has been receiving fairly good reviews from what I've seen and opens in wide release this weekend. This one stars John David Washington as a special forces agent fighting in a war between humans and AI. Edwards, of course, the director of Rogue One and 2014's Godzilla reboot. If you catch up with Henry Sugar or the creator and want to share your thoughts, send those to feedback at filmspotting.net. Maybe we'll share it on next week's show.
0: That's feedback at filmspotting.net. We teased this a little on last week's episode, the second annual refocus film festival celebrating the art of adaptation is coming back to Iowa city and specifically Iowa city's amazing film scene theater. The festival takes place October 12th through the 15th. They've got a really incredible lineup this year. And I mean that partly Josh, as you know, because we discussed this with our producer, Sam, if you just look at the list of movies that are playing new movies, but also some old ones that tie back to this theme of adaptation. There's like, I don't know, at least 15 movies I'd love to make time for at this festival. It's really hard to pick, but also in terms of some of the luminaries you will see at the Refocus Film Festival. I mean, to start, we'll be there. Yeah. I mean, no kidding. I know I
1: know you, you and Sam were there last year. This year, all three of us, I'm dropping mm-hmm. in. Very excited to introduce, I'll do a little talk before, The Shining on Saturday night. I think it's starting at like 10 p.m., so nothing better than a late night screening of a classic horror movie. I'm going to be talking about it in the context of my new book, Fear Not, A Christian Appreciation of Horror Movies, and I can't wait to do that. And we're doing the next day, Sunday, Adam, a live taping of the show that'll be In the afternoon, and I think we've nailed down a pretty exciting topic, even if it wasn't connected to an even more exciting event taking place at the fest.
0: Yeah, we're going to do a top five that connects back to one of our heroes here on the show, though someone we haven't talked about a ton since Sam and I did devoted to his work and his collaboration, specifically with Klaus Kinski. Of course, I'm talking about Werner Herzog. Werner Herzog is going to be at the Refocus Film Festival just a few days before the fest. His autobiography is coming out. Cannot wait to get my hands on it. And I'm supposed to be interviewing him there behind the scenes. Playing it on film spotting later, so I really do hope I get my hands on that book. It's got a very Herzogian title, and we could explain the significance of it, but we'll we'll hold on that for now. You may know it, some of you Herzog aficionados out there. His autobiography is called "Every Man for Himself and God Against All," a memoir. He is going to be there on Sunday night, so seven thirty. Our event is at one thirty. At 7.30, he's going to be at the Ingler Theater downtown, lovely old theater, doing an event, talking about his work and his life. We thought it would be fun to do a top five that might be a bit of a starter pack for Herzog. If you're someone who is aware of him but maybe doesn't totally understand what all the fuss is about or where you should start, we're going to give you, hopefully, a little bit of insight there. And The tickets are easy to come by for our event anyway. You'll have to get on the website and see if you can get the tickets for the Herzog event that night. Our event's free. We're giving away tickets. All you have to do is go to refocusfilmfestival.org. That's refocusfilmfestival.org. And when you go to our event and click on tickets, enter the code Herzog, H-E-R-Z-O-G, to get your free ticket. Look at that.
1: I don't, think, I don't think tickets to see me talk for 50 minutes before The Shining are free, so I don't know how no. that math works out. <laughs> not sure about the value there, but yeah, hope to see some
0: Iowa City folks at all of those events. Or, you know, folks from the surrounding area, definitely worth it to come out for this lineup and for Herzog. And if Herzog's not enough, one of my heroes, as you know, because I talk incessantly about the movie adaptation of his book, and yes, I also love the book, The World According to Garp. By John Irving, graduate of the Iowa, the renowned Iowa Writers Workshop, he's also going to be at the Refocus Film Festival on Saturday afternoon. They're showing the Cider House Rules, and he's going to be there before that. So John Irving, Cider House Rules, Josh, The Shining, you know what? You don't have to choose. You can go to both. There you go. I like that. I like that strategy. So it makes sense with Refocus
1: being, you know, a festival, film festival that does concentrate on works of adaptation that the Iowa City Book Festival runs in conjunction. And the folks there were kind enough to invite me to also do a Fear Not book talk as part of their schedule. So I'll be doing that Saturday morning. So if you're keeping track, uh, I guess come out Saturday morning, hear me talk about the book, come out Saturday night hear me talk a little more, watch The Shining, and then join us on Sunday afternoon to see that live recording of Film Spotting. One more Fear Not Book event I want to let Chicago area listeners in particular know about. I mentioned this on last week's show, but over at Facets on the north side there, Fullerton Avenue here in Chicago, I'm going to be introducing a screening of Talk to Me, the Australian possession horror film. This is going to be at 8 p.m., On October 28th. So, if your Halloween weekend plans are not set yet and you're looking for something to do, come join us at Facets. I'll introduce the movie. And then afterwards, I'm going to lead a discussion in their newly renovated cafe about how Talk to Me might fit into Fear Not My Book. And we'll talk about the movie itself. We'll talk about horror. Honestly, we'll talk about whatever you want to talk about if you show up for that on Halloween weekend. So, that's October 28th. And you can get tickets to the Talk to Me screening at the facets website
0: this week over on our sister podcast, the next picture show. It's part two of their Pablo Lorraine Pinochet pairing. They are looking at Lorraine's new film, El Conde and talking about it in the context of Lorraine's 2012 breakout starring Gail Garcia Bernal. That film was no, the next picture show looking at cinemas present via its past is hosted by Tasha Robinson, Keith Phipps, Scott Tobias, Genevieve, sadly off this week due to illness, but of course we're hoping for her quick return. They post new episodes every Tuesday, and you can learn more at nextpictureshow.net. Okay.
1: So go Zam. Um. Da goes da, 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 da. a bit in it. Can you, can you do that? Brilliant. And then there's another part
0: that goes there. There it is. That scene from 2007's Once, the breakout film from director John Carney. Moving us along nicely and romantically into poll results. A couple of weeks back, in anticipation of Flora and Son, we asked you, what is your favorite John Carney film? We gave you those three options that he is most known for once, Sing Street, or Begin Again. Josh, how did it come out? Well, if 11% is a respectable showing, I think we
1: can say that about begin again. That's where it landed. We probably expected it to come in last, but 11%, not bad. Sing Street took second place with 39%
0: while once did win this with 50% of the vote. Brett in Newton, Mass says, this poll has one option that is correct, one option that is acceptable, and one option if you choose it, That will make people wonder if you've seen the other two films. I voted for once. No need to get nasty, Brett. Here's Sean Means. Years ago, the
1: Sundance Film Festival used to screen some titles for Utah movie critics before the festival. We were given little information ahead of time other than what was in the festival guide. In 2007, one of the movies the festival showed us was Once.
0: Yeah. You know who else was at the 2007 Sundance Film Festival? Me and Sam. Nice. Where we somehow completely missed once, which won both the World Cinema Grand Jury Prize and the Audience Award. So Mm. what do we know? Okay. (laughs) Well, here's a little bit more from Sean.
1: Knowing almost nothing about the movie beforehand, I fell instantly in love with the characters, the aging Dublin busker and the young Czech immigrant and the performances, and especially the gloriously contagious music. I fell so hard for once that I rushed back to my office after the screening, got onto iTunes, and found and immediately bought the Swell Seasons eponymous debut album, which featured most of the songs from the movie. Once is a movie about love, both love expressed in music and love for the music. The same could be said for John Carney's other movies, Begin Again and Sing Street, but Once hits the heart more directly with its simple story and amazing songs. So it's the one I voted for. P.S. Begin Again would be more highly regarded and more easily remembered by Josh if they had kept the original title, Can a Song
0: Save Your Life? Hmm, maybe more easily remembered. I'll give you that. Here's Dominic. Once might be the better film objectively, but very few films lived up to the hype and had me smiling and engaged throughout its entire runtime. Sing Street is that film. Drive it like you stole it, baby. Also heard from Colin Free in Wales. I do love Sing Street,
1: but have to vote for Begin Again for the exhilarating jamming scene on the roof at the end of the
0: film, one I have watched time and time again. Another rooftop scene from john carney and a very good one and i'm going to go back real quick before we get to our final comment from patricia in portland and just say in defense of brett i don't know that he's being mean josh necessarily i think begin again's fine i do i'm not negative on it we just love those other two films so much that's that's what i'm going to chalk it up to there here's patricia As someone who, as a teenager, loved music more than I loved the guys in drum corps I kept falling for, I can say that men don't love women being a part of music. That's why I love Begin Again more than John Carney's other films. Women musicians are still viewed as side pieces to the main event, Joni Mitchell and Emmylou Harris in The Last Waltz, every single woman in 20 Feet from Stardom. If they do have success, it's because they fight hard to get it, Kristen Stewart as Joan Jett in The Runaways. Women aren't even really allowed to have opinions about music, the guy flipping through Lady Bird's CD collection and sneering at her greatest hit CD. So I'm all in for a movie about a woman musician who, when her musician boyfriend decides he doesn't actually need her, sets off on her own musical journey one that involves gorilla recording music with other people who love to make music as much as she does. When she decides to go on her own way with her album, dropping the music industry that wasn't interested in her, I'm happy. And when she turns up the volume on Haley Steinfeld's guitar solo, it gets, how do you say it? Dusty in the room. Listening to Adam talk enthusiastically about the band for several uninterrupted minutes in this week's episode, I realized I've never had a full conversation about the music I love that hasn't involved whatever man is in the room telling me my opinion is wrong or taking over the conversation with a well, actually, given the choice between watching girl play the piano, guy bought her, Connor and Rafina sailing off to a new life in London, or Greta's contented bike ride, I'm going to take the fulfilled female musician any day. Pardon me, Josh, just for a second before we move on. I just have to have to update the title of last week's show to Adam Mansplain's The Last Waltz. Yes, I'm afraid. And I'm okay, afraid. I'm done. <laughs>
1: Possibly, I've, and I'm I've sure that will publish. We'll, you know what? That's going to get us tons of new listeners. We should probably yeah. do that. Mm-hmm. I do think Patricia, fair to say she might really enjoy the absolutely not moment
0: in Flora and Son. So <laughs> I think she will. And based on her criteria there, I think she might think Flora and Son is John Carney's best film. We'll have to hear from her. Thanks to everyone who voted and shared a comment. Our new poll looks ahead to the 20th anniversary of Quentin Tarantino's Kill Bill Volume one. It hit theaters on October 10th, 2003. We have had a sacred cow review of Kill Bill penciled into the schedule for many months. But now we're looking at October and it's pretty jam packed with stuff we want to talk about. We want to talk about Kill Bill, too. We're just not sure when we can do it. Yeah. And it is really a matter of how the schedule came together,
1: you know, especially with the the strike news and so forth. We kind of had to have backup plans for some of these weeks. And this was one that sounded really exciting, but there are new releases up that we definitely want to see, too. So we'll see what happens. Um, We might get to it, but we do want to offer a question related to Kill Bill at any rate. And it is, who is your favorite Tarantino actor slash collaborator? And Sam settled, which I think is smart, on someone who has had to have been in a minimum of three films. That leaves you Samuel L. Jackson, of course, Pulp Fiction, Jackie Brown, Kill Bill, Volume 2, Inglourious Bastards, just a vocal bit there, Django Unchained and Hateful Eight, Uma Thurman, who was in Pulp Fiction, and of course, the two Kill Bills, Kurt Russell, who showed up in Death Proof, Hateful Eight, and Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, Michael Madsen. Reservoir Dogs, of course, Kill Bill, Volume 1 and 2, Hateful Eight, and also Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. Tim Roth was in Reservoir Dogs, Pulp Fiction, and Hateful Eight. Harvey Keitel, Reservoir Dogs, Pulp Fiction, and Inglorious Bastards. One more option here, Zoe Bell, Death Proof, Django Unchained,
0: Hateful Eight, and Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. Only two films so far, Josh, thus not eligible. Sorry, you can't vote for Leo DiCaprio. You can't vote for Brad Pitt. You can't vote for two-time Oscar winner Christoph Waltz. You also cannot vote for Mr. Pink himself. Steve Buscemi, though, I think he'd have something to say about being disqualified here. Over on social media, who do you think is running away with it in voting? Yeah, say what again? It's, It's Samuel L. Jackson in a landslide. And Josh, I'd love to come up with a counter here And, you know, go off the beaten path with someone like Michael Madsen, just because he's one of those guys that Tarantino loves to use that, you know, it's not like we saw him everywhere on screen or used to such good effect over the past 20 to 30 years. Of course, love Uma Thurman and Pulp Fiction and as the bride, but with Samuel L. Jackson, you could just stop with Pulp Fiction and Jackie Brown and then you add in Django and the Hateful Eight. He's a pretty clear choice for me. What about you? Here's what I couldn't get past because my instinct was the same as yours.
1: You know, let's, let's really give this some consideration, see if I can go on a bit of a zag here. But the honest truth is when you say Quentin Tarantino movies, the first face that comes to mind is not even Quentin Tarantino who has been in his movies, but Samuel Jackson. So mm-hmm. I can't really, I can't really debate my instinct
0: on this one. I'm going to have to be boring and go the same way. Check out the big brain on Josh. You can vote and leave a comment at filmspotting.net. Time to haul out the boombox, Josh. We have something we want to play for you. Stop Making Sense is back in theaters. And as we noted on last week's show, we didn't revisit the Talking Heads concert film with a Sacred Cow review, opting instead for The Last Waltz because we'd already done it back in 2020 as part of our 8 from 84 series. So we're going to share that now. We thought we may have some new listeners that want to hear it. We may have some longtime listeners that just love hearing people talk about Talking Heads and Jonathan Demme's greatness. So you're going to hear our thoughts on Stop Making Sense, and as a little bonus, you'll hear us talk about another classic music movie from 84. This is Final Tap. And now, David Byrne.
1: Hi, I got a tape I want to play.
0: From the opening of Jonathan Demme's Stop Making Sense, that's Talking Heads frontman David Byrne. We get into our eight from 84 rock trio now, and we'll start with the films that are the consensus masterpieces. Demme's seminal concert film and Rob Reiner's This Is Spinal Tap. Spinal Tap was first to be released. It came out in March of 84, made a modest $5 million at the domestic box office. That's around $12 million in today's dollars, but... Not surprising, considering it soon became a cult hit. It did run in theaters for almost a year, and it marked Rob Reiner's directing debut.
1: Looking at Stop Making Sense, that only played a limited release, opened in New York City in October and made about $5 million in its theatrical run. Jonathan Demme had been working for quite a bit already started his career a decade earlier making cheap genre movies for Roger Corman just before stop making sense he had made Melvin and Howard and also Swing Shift. So these are two movies we're familiar with Adam as a matter of fact they both showed up when we did our top 5 films of 1984. I think this was I think this was in uh, 2017 around And our ranking of them on those lists uh, was a little bit different. Spinal Tap for you, the best film of 1984. You had Stop Making Sense ranked number three. I had Stop Making Sense as the second best film of 1984. So, Splitting hairs probably a little bit there, but that's what we do on this show. So now that you've thought about it a little bit more, um, and especially in the context of Purple Rain and this year that we've been revisiting in this 8 from 84 series that has prompted this show, um, do you you feel pretty solid about that top ranking for Spinal Tap?
0: Yeah, I do. And I think it may come down to that distinction. Sometimes we make between best versus favorite. In a lot of ways, I think Stop Making Sense might be the better film or the better crafted film. But in terms of the movie that I absolutely can't imagine living without, I still value This Is Final Tap just a little bit more. And I want to avoid trying to be too grandiose here and also avoid turning this pandemic we're experiencing and how we're all coping with it into a cliche i mentioned this last week in relation to our top five 1930s films we talked about top hat and how it served as fantasy escapism for people suffering through the great depression why couldn't it transport us now as we all sit on our couches and i think stop making sense offers a completely different type of necessary escape with fred and ginger you're living vicariously through them And there's no real sense of community there. And when I rewatched Stop Making Sense for this show, I felt a little bit like Charlton Heston in The Omega Man with that lone print of Woodstock, the last man in the world watching this eclectic group of performers surrounded by people sharing in this collective reverie. And Stop Making Sense, let's be honest, it's a party even without the crowd there, right? There are certainly Mm -hmm. songs and whole stretches where you kind of forget the crowd is even there as if... David Byrne and company are performing only for us, the film watching audience. And we can talk about that in some of the ways Demi approaches it. But just in terms of the number of musicians on stage and the talent and joy of performing, they exhibit and their interaction with each other, which is so crucial. It's like you're on stage with them.
1: Well, and this is why Byrne, David Byrne and Demi were a perfect for this film, for this music documentary. Uh, It's exactly what Demi brought to the Justin Timberlake and the Tennessee Kids doc from a few years ago on Netflix, emphasized the communal experience, the 15 plus, I think it was, person band in that case. And the camera floated among each performer and gave them their time. Similar things are happening here, but just as Timberlake was the conductor of that group, Byrne is absolutely, I would say he's beyond the conductor here. He is the auteur of this film, David Byrne is. And I uh, talked a little bit about this when we did that list, the top five films of 84, because the way that he is paying attention to everything from the production design to those who are up on the stage with him, to the props, the way he uses that lamp, that house lamp when they're performing, this must be the place. Um, Everything he's controlling to a specific degree, a burn is. And then Demi is the sort of filmmaker that wants to make space for all of that. His camera wants to encompass, you see this in his Fiction in his drama films. His camera wants to make room for everyone in the story. And how many group scenes aren't there in Demi films? And that's what this is a group scene. This is one long group scene made up of the music, the brilliant music from Byrne and the talking heads as well. Um, so yeah, I think it's just a, the perfect example of
0: everything coming together. Yeah, I'm going to echo what you said because that clip we heard from Psycho Killer. That's one of my favorite Demi moments. I think it made my top five Jonathan Demi moments a list we did back when he passed away. And of course, it opens just with David Byrne walking out on stage, and he dominates that tune. But that sense of community I'm talking about, and this idea of unity that we see on stage throughout the whole rest of the film, it's built into the very fabric of the movie. Yes, it starts with him alone, but the next tune adds just one more piece, Tina on right. bass, right? And they play heaven. And the camera... I'm pretty sure, if not the entire song, 95% of it stays on a two-shot where they are joined together that entire time. It's never about just cutting to what she's doing or cutting to what David Byrne is doing. It's about them together performing. And then the next song adds Chris France on the drums. And I think they perform Thank You for Sending Me an Angel. And the way the camera then gives him his time and goes from behind the drum set rotating around to the side and the front of the stage it's rotating around so that it gets those two in the shot with him right and what started as just kind of the drummer becomes this trio and then we're just going to add more and more pieces until everybody finally is on stage commuting together and you mentioned this specificity That we get there's no doubt about it. I actually want to play for our listeners a quick clip that I just happened to come across our friends at the blank check podcast tweeted this and it's a conversation after a screening I think of that Justin Timberlake concert film where he's talking about what draws him to live music and capturing it and putting it on film
1: for me. Um, and I love shooting feature films with actors, I love shooting documentaries with real people, but something about shooting live music, I, I always, this probably isn't true, but I think this is the purest form of filmmaking. There are these artists doing that and we're here to team up with that and capture that and in the, in the way that best suits the music that's being played. And it's thrilling.
0: I just love Demi emphasizing the kind of giddiness he has when he says, there are these artists doing that. And then when he says, we're here to team up with that. Again, that sense of team, that sense of community. And how important it is for him to do it in a way that best suits the music being played. That's exactly what you articulated, Josh. There is this precision to it, right? The choreography of the visuals matching the stage choreography. And it would be almost impossible, I think, to rank the top five numbers, the top five songs in this movie if we forced ourselves to do it. But Once in a Lifetime stands out. Life during wartime stands out, as well as making Flippy Floppy. But then you look at one like What a Day That Was, which goes almost completely to close-ups and that dramatic silhouetted lighting almost like it's a horror movie and for a while we don't get any group shots it's just isolated shots of each member some of the angles are a little bit more odder but there's almost this mathematical framing to every shot there that matches the song completely
1: Yeah, for me, it probably is uh, the number I mentioned. This must be the place just because it has all those elements you're talking about. And it, it it's that balance of Byrne, David Byrne's extreme individuality, extreme oddness, right? Just the oddness he has as a physical presence. But then also w- the camera will back up and make room for, as you said, the group. And they have this interesting um, use of, I think we'll probably talk about this when it comes to Purple Rain especially, um, where there is some choreography, sort of, but at the same time, I think of the group backing away from the stage, and this includes the backup singers and dancers as well, Edna Holt and Lynn Mabry. Everyone kind of backs up in unison, but at the same time, they're each doing their own thing. Um, Those two dancers, Mabry and Holt, Mm -hmm. each have their own sort of rhythm going on. And so it's at once this group movement that also honors individuality, and, and I think that that's the magic that Demi knows how to, um, how to depict, and
0: Byrne obviously knows how to create. Yeah, that is the magic of Stop Making Sense. Any final thoughts you want to get in on the film?
1: No, I mean, I, just one maybe that will bring us into this is Spinal Tap. You mentioned how, um, you know, what what is a personal favorite as opposed to what is the best. I think another, as I thought of all three of these films together, you know, not even really ranking, but just as they, how they sit with me, uh, an inescapable fact is whatever music you like the best, you're going to resonate with the most. And so let me give my This Is Spinal Tap confession, <laughs> which maybe, maybe um, explain why I did have it ranked a little bit lower, is that's just brutal music to me. (laughs) And the question I have for you, Adam, as someone who um, is in a band that plays on occasion, from what I understand, I I still have to see you live, have not been able to do that Uh yet. Um, But, you know, we'll play covers of this genre. Um, I'll let you name the genre, whether it's heavy metal, hair (laughs) metal, whatever you want to say. But my question is, the music in Spinal Tap, do you consider it um, brutal on purpose, (laughs) or do you consider it a very particular and precise um, rendition of that kind of music? So are they doing a good job of this kind of music? Basically, if you like this kind of music, um, are these good
0: performances of those types of songs? Well, I'm going to say it's more the former, but there's some gray area there. I guess I will fundamentally disagree with your position because I have This is Spinal Tap ranked as my favorite movie of the three, but in terms of the music, it's by far number three. And it's way down at the bottom. And I'm going to be clear here. You're taking the bold position that the mediocre band that's stuck playing Air Force bases and amusement parks and being mocked on the radio isn't very good. Is that what you're saying, no, Josh?
1: No, no, no. I'm saying heavy metal has has been like I would classify as one of those sounds along with leaf blowers and, and people like revving up their trucks as they sit next <laughs> to me at a stoplight.
0: That gives me the hives. That's what I'm saying. Yeah, I get it. But I think the way I look at it is. And thank you. You saved me from having to pull out the I'm in a band card, which is essential when talking about Spinal <laughs> hey, Tap. But,
1: I knew I knew it was coming, so yeah, I thought you I'd did. serve it up for you.
0: You know me well. There's literally nobody. I'm going to go on the record and say there's literally nobody who watches This Is Spinal Tap and appreciates the music unironically, any of the okay. musicianship, which isn't to say that those guys aren't actually halfway decent players. I mean, they're all decent enough musicians to fake their way through it, and we've seen them perform in other Christopher Guest movies, too, and, right? So, And
1: honestly, that's why I asked, because because yeah. I do, I'm not saying that they are untalented. No, they're, I'm saying they're this isn't my talented. kind of
0: music. So no, the I question
1: was, like, how yeah.
0: how does their talent transfer? Well, is the uh, question. I guess the nuance is, is that you can't help but look at songs like Big Bottom and Stonehenge and Sex Farm and not recognize them as jokes. And I think what it gets right about heavy metal, and I use that term loosely because I do think it is more rock and roll, but heavy metal does get thrown around, I think, a couple times in the film it gets right that that genre has a juvenile obsession with sex. And there's always that vague fascination with the occult and mysticism and those cheap theatrics. And even something that I had never really paid attention to before, not like it wasn't obviously there, but I had never really paid attention to the heart of the movie before, the way I did this time, which is that rivalry and that friendship between lead singer and guitar player. But that's something that's so crucial to almost every rock band out there as well. For me, every band of that ilk though, From that time, and frankly, just about every band who's ever toured, regardless of what genre they fall into, they would be able to watch Spinal Tap and see themselves in tap, while also totally accurately being able to say, oh, that's not us at all. We don't sound like that. Like Spinal Tap is a unique entity as much as they might be parodying certain aspects of heavy metal bands and life on the road. The music is completely its own thing that I don't think any one band out there could say, oh, man, they really got us good with that.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And they probably wouldn't want to because it is pretty bad. So so let's get to what is good. And you mentioned it. The songs are jokes, obviously. Yes. And they're fu- the lyrics are hysterical. Uh, and I could sit and watch um, Marty DeBergey, Interview these guys. I mean, if the movie was just that, I would yeah. be completely happy. And and no surprise. I love comic improvisation. And you can just see uh, – I love also seeing actors this talented at it um, trying to keep character. Not, not that they're going to like yep. – yeah, not that they're going to fall out of character and say something out of character. What they're trying to do is – Keep the glint in their eye when they see an opening from getting too bright right. <laughs> and, and this is such rich material and these these guys are just so smart at delivering it that that is their true challenge is is just not to to get too excited about you know what they what they're gonna say and whether it's you know explaining the drummers who <laughs> who they've lost along the way uh, or or even like going up to eleven just those pauses of w- where deBgie is like <laughs> dumbfounded at what he's hearing (laughs) and the two of them are going to have to sustain this scene without giving in or even smiling it's brilliant stuff
0: now during the flower people period who was your drummer Stumpy's replacement, Peter James Bond. He also died in mysterious circumstances. We were playing uh, a uh, festival, l- jazz blues festival. Where was that? Blues well, jazz, really. Blues jazz festival. It was, the, it, was the, uh, it was in the Isle oil oil of, of Lucy. Lucy. The oh. Isle of Lucy. The Isle of Lucy. Jazz and uh, it was tragic, really. He exploded on stage. Just like that. He just went up. He just was like a flash of green light. And that was it. Nothing was left. It was his face. Well, there was. It's that, true. This, it truly really did happen. There was happen. a little green globule on his drum seat. It's like a stain, really. Was it was it. a small of a stain it. in a globule, yeah. actually. And you there know, was, several, you know, dozens of people spontaneously combust each year. It's yeah. just not really widely reported. Right. I agree with you. I think the best scenes in the film were probably completely in lockstep that if they had just made an entire movie out of. Rob Reiner as Marty DeBergi interviewing the band and watching how Derek Smalls Harry Shear, knows when to insert himself into the conversation and when to just stay yes. on the outside of it, right? And let yep. let Michael McKean and Christopher Guest do their thing and them navigate each other and. Recognize when they have to let the other guy take the lead. And yes, you're right, not break character so much because they're all too good to do that, but you can see that moment where they come up right against it. They're so impressed with some bit of riffing that the guy next to them just said that they're almost willing to break, but then they get back into character and manage to come up with a line to follow it with. And you're right, for me, all these years later, no matter how many times I've seen it, it's still funny. It still has all those great quotable lines and those sight gags that everyone knows. But the funniest stuff to me, honestly, besides those conversation scenes we just touched on, are the moments where we get a simple cut to Christopher Guest expressionless but chomping the gum every time Janine talks. Yeah. <laughs> right. Just that simple cut to him. No reaction, no visible reaction. But we know everything he's thinking just based on that cut.
1: And I'm glad you bring up Guest because I think they're all obviously good and they're all giving us, you know, real characters. But guest, I think, is giving a real performance for sure. And it's it's the I, it's the elements you're talking about. It's those little details where where he is uh, within that. He's he's Nigel Tufnell every moment. You know he he's whether it's his turn to say something to throw in a riff or just to sit there and listen he he is not um, breaking character at all no uh, and it's also that's where as his films as a director go on these other mockumentaries he would make um, you can see how they are mostly increasingly rooted in character in stories in in people you can imagine their full lives beyond. The interview, the on-camera interview they're having right now. And you can see the seeds of that in his performance as Nigel in this full character he's giving
0: us. Absolutely. Just that mixture of bravado and stupidity is really <laughs> brilliant. What, what can you do but laugh at moments like him saying, so it's sexy, What's wrong with being sexy when they're talking about the <laughs> album cover and how sexy it right. is? It's just perfection. So, yeah, I love both of these films. This is Spinal Tap and Stop Making Sense. Both of them are available on demand on various platforms right now. This is a top to uh, you know what we use on stage, but it's very, very special because if you can see, yeah the numbers all go to 11. Look, right across the board um, 11, well, 11, and most 11, 11, and most of the amps then it, go up to 10. Exactly. Does that mean it's louder? Is it any louder? Well, it's one louder, isn't it? It's not 10. You see, most most blokes are going to be playing at 10. You're on 10 here, all the way up, all the way up, yeah. all the way up. You're on 10 on your guitar. Where mm. can you go from there? Where? I don't know. Nowhere, exactly. What we do is, if we need that extra push over the cliff. You know what we do? Put it up to 11. 11, exactly. One louder. Why don't you just make 10 louder and make 10 be the top number and make that a little louder? These go to 11. From March 2020, those were our eight from 84 reviews of This is Final Tap and Stop Making Sense. The 40th anniversary re-release of Stop Making Sense is currently playing in limited release. If you see it, and if you have any chance to see it, you have to go. We're mandating that you go. We'd love to hear from you. Feedback at filmspotting.net. You can find that episode and the entire 8 from 84 series, as well as several hundred more episodes in the Film Spotting archives. For complete access to the archive, visit filmspottingfamily.com. That's our show, Josh. If you would like to connect with us on Facebook, Twitter, or
1: Letterboxd, Adam is at Film Spotting. I'm at Larson on Film. The current Film Spotting poll has us looking ahead to the 20th anniversary of Quentin Tarantino's Kill Bill Volume 1. We're asking you to name your favorite Tarantino actor collaborator who appeared in a minimum of three films. For show t shirts or other merch, go to filmspotting.net slash shop. Film Spotting is listener supported. You can join the Film Spotting family at FilmspottingFamily.com for as little as five bucks a month. You can listen to the show early and ad free. You'll also get a weekly newsletter and the possibility of monthly bonus shows and/or access to the entire Film Spotting archive.
0: Yeah, it's funny. Sam here has listed a bunch of shows where once has appeared in the archive. Those include Top Five Movies About Music. 164. Top five soundtracks, 230. Top five date movies, 291. Top five movies that console and restore hope, number 612. Top five movie duets, number 700. I wonder if I'm the one who put once on all five of those lists. I think it's very likely. He did not note when he and I reviewed once on the show, and that might be because now he looks back, not quite so fondly on that review. It's a film he now admits maybe he didn't he didn't fully appreciate the first time around, Wasn't Josh. Fan, at least he huh? came around better late than never. Sure. Of course. Sing street did get a ton of love for me in 2016. It was my number two film of the year, but it is actually never appeared on a top five list. We do encourage you to check out all the benefits of becoming a film spotting family member at filmspottingfamily.com. Out in wide release this weekend, we do hope to catch up with the creator from director Gareth Edwards, he of Rogue One and Godzilla fame, John David Washington in a humans versus AI war. Dumb Money is expanding. Paul Dano is the man behind 2021's GameStop stock frenzy. That's directed by Craig Gillespie, who made Itania and Cruella. The Kill Room. This is an art world satire with Uma Thurman. Samuel L. Jackson, not directed by Tarantino. Maya Hawk appears, Joe Manganello, and Josh, you can see Saw X. Is it X or is it 10? Have they really made 10 of them? Oh my goodness, have they There's made- no way they've made 10, have it's they? It's possible. It's very possible. Have you have you seen these? Have you wrestled with these in Fear Not?
1: You know, um, do not give a lot of attention. To the saw franchise in in fear not but appreciate the book plug uh, I think I lasted I think I lasted for four of these I'm gonna have to go confirm wow. at LarsonOnFilm.com. what I can tell you is in my experience diminishing returns
0: from a diminished place to begin with four more than I can say streaming you can see Flora and Sun on Apple TV plus we both recommend it. Wes Anderson's The Wonderful Story of Henry Sugar is out on Netflix. And next week, we'll talk a little Henry Sugar. We'll talk the creator. And who knows what else we'll get up to. Film Spotting is produced by Golden Joe DeSoe and Sam Van Hogren.
1: Without Sam and Golden Joe, this show wouldn't go. Our production assistants are Betty Lavendero and Veronica Phillips. And special thanks to everyone at WBEZ Chicago. More information is available at WBEZ.org. For Film Spotting, I'm Josh Larson. And I'm
0: Adam Kempinar. Thanks for listening. This conversation can serve no purpose anymore. Goodbye.